this is a conversation with Sophie Smith. She is an entrepreneur currently serving as the CEO and co-founder of Napta Health, which aims at providing personalized healthcare for women in emerging markets using a new model of hybrid healthcare. In the past, she has also founded a plastic recycling company in Sierra Leone and a doctor finding app in Pakistan. In this conversation, we discuss women's health in the femtech industry, entrepreneurship, challenges faced by female founders within the region, and making a social impact. This is no time. If you like what you see, then do hit subscribe on YouTube. I don't know why you haven't done it yet. The people who don't do it are going to get long, angry emails from me. I said what I said. If not on YouTube, then you can also follow this channel on Spotify or rate five stars on Apple Podcasts. We are nearly 30 episodes in and I've been doing all the work, the shooting, the video editing, the sound editing and the interviews itself, which kind of really explains the average quality. Once a disappointment, always a disappointment. So if you'd like to see me improve the quality, then do consider making a donation on Patreon. Thank you to the people who continue to do so. And the more donations you can give, I can hopefully get better equipment and also hire minions to do the work for me. That's a good message, I hope. For other forms of love and support, you can follow this channel on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Reddit, wherever you like, or follow me personally. And now, this summer, it's no time. Fritjof Nansen once said that the difficult is what takes long, but the impossible is what takes longer. Very early on in your career, you wrote a mad manifesto, making a difference for a social enterprise. Then you went on to found a plastic recycling company in Sierra Leone, a doctor finding platform in Pakistan, and now currently you are the co-founder and CEO of Napta Health. We all know the challenges of founding a company and they're immense. And a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of hard work. And I imagine the challenges get compounded even further if you're in social impact. So my first question for you is, despite all the challenges and all the obstacles you face, why are you an entrepreneur? Why do you do this? Why do you think you constantly have a desire within you to give back to society and create an impact? Um, I think that's actually a very difficult question to answer. And I don't think it's a question with an answer. I think um, there are a lot of vocational pursuits in life. Um, and there are things that you obviously go into or study for like medicine or law, um, or teaching. And, um, at no point when I was a child or studying, did I ever think that I was going to get into the business of starting companies. Um, but it's what happened. It's what happened. And once I set up my first company, it was apparent to me that this is what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. Um, when I worked for Accenture for four years, um, I got told repeatedly by the people that I worked for that I was something of a maverick and I didn't really fit into the company and I wasn't going to progress there. Although I was actually the first person within my cohort to be promoted from analyst to consultant. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I don't know. I think, I think, I think building things is, 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 and building companies is as much a vocation as, as other vocational pursuits that you study for, you just tend to discover it by accident. Do you think a part of the reason why you always wanted to go into impact, you had this itch when you were working at Accenture, was because your parents were doctors, your father was in the NHS as well. Do you think from a very young age, you saw them and then you also wanted to give back in a way? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, they, they're not just doctors actually. Uh, so my father until recently was the National Clinical Director of Diagnostics for the NHS ran one of the um, NHS's first big digitalization programs um, called PAX. Um, my mother also qualified, but then never really practiced because she had me and then my seven brothers and sisters. 
Um, but in then alongside that, alongside my mom really having a lot of children to deal with and my father having his full-time job as a doctor, they started an educational trust called PACT, which stands for Parents and Children with Teachers, um, which now has four schools. They established it in 1996. And the idea of the trust was to, um, to, to raise children who were first and foremost good people, um, people with a sense of, um, with a moral compass and a sense of dignity. Um, obviously they, they pride themselves on academic excellence and they've continuously ranked in the top kind of 50 independent schools in the UK. But um, it was about building good people first and foremost. And so I think, yeah, if you have, if you have parents who fundamentally have kind of dedicated their lives to the pursuit of good, it rubs off on you eventually. <laughs> You also mentioned, I believe you're the eldest of eight siblings. Yes. Yes. So I imagine you might have developed a lot of natural leadership skills and management skills, just handling all your siblings around. You think that helps now? Um, yeah, I think so. I think um, y you're used to being being in charge. Yeah. <laughs> um, you get very good at delegation. Uh there's a there's a sense of of a sen there's a sense of responsibility that is conferred conferred by default on you. Um, I think they did a study at one point that showed that the uh, uh, the highest percentage of like firstborn children made up the the greatest um, percentage of CEOs. So I'm sure there's something about bossing a around your younger siblings <laughs> that then sets you up to be people who. Uh, want to start companies and um, and continue to manage things on your own terms. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a study that we should look forward into. Moving on from there, then you went to Cambridge to study, University of Cambridge to study history. I'm very interested to know, are there any skill sets that you gain from studying history at Cambridge that you can now directly translate into the work you do? Because at first glance, it seems like they're two very independent, two very separate fields of work. Yeah, so I, I think history allows you to compute vast quantities of data, albeit mostly qualitative rather than quantitative, um, and you know come to quite succinct conclusions off the back of the consumption or processing of all of this data. Um, I read history because um, it was a subject that had good teachers at the school that I was at. I was at a um, um, at a Catholic state school in, or just on the outskirts of Croydon in, in the UK. And um, yeah, it was, it, it had good teachers. Um, it's an excellent school. The science department wasn't great. Um, and I think there still probably wasn't the support for women. Um, it was a girls only school to go into scientific subjects and pursuits as much as there should have been. Um, so both of my grandfathers actually read engineering at Cambridge and we have a lot of engineers in the family. And since I was very young, I have been fascinated with building things. I used to, when I was like two or three, build giant structures out of paper, castles, ships. Um, I've always loved making things. Um, and not at, at no point in my childhood did anybody say to me, despite the fact that we have a lot of engineers in the family and people who went down very technical technical kind of science-based um, routes. No one said to me, Sophie, have you thought about becoming an engineer? It wasn't even broached as a subject. And the thing is, when you're, when you're young, you don't know what you don't know. And if 
sometimes if something isn't pro propositioned, um, there's no reason why you would consider it as an option. Um, so I read history, but I think I probably always at, in my heart of hearts been been an engineer and someone who wanted to build things. So when I was at Cambridge, um, I got involved with actually, I dated a guy who was a fellow in computer science um, at St. John's College. And he at the time was building um, a, uh, a system that used Bayesian methods for spoken dialogue management. So it was like a, a, a kind of an intelligent voice assistant that would allow you to book appointments with restaurants, et cetera, using completely free speech very ahead of its time, actually. The company went on to become Vocal IQ, um, which was acquired by Apple in 2015 for in the region of a hundred million pounds. Um, and yeah, so I spent a lot of time in the engineering department in my last two years at Cambridge, interacting with the system, became very interested in programming then, learned to program in Python and Visual Basic, so nothing particularly complex. Um, and that I think is what then resulted in me going to work for Accenture. And I, I didn't work in strategy. I worked in technology implementation. So on implementing voice over IP systems and then building operating models for contact centers, all very technically focused. It's interesting how, even though you went for history, you ended up going down the path that you were interested in at the end, you did find your calling within the engineering school itself. One interesting point I wanted to uh, check upon from your past is so you've, well, actually, I remember this quote from John Rockefeller where he said that, don't, uh, sorry, I'm going to butcher it. So it's going to say, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. And in the past, you founded this plastic recycling company in Sierra Leone and my Zindagi, the doctor finding app in Pakistan. And you've spoken that at a point, you realized that this was not for you. And when it came to Napna instead, you felt this is it. This is the perfect one for me and this is what I want to do. How hard is that decision? Because it seems like because founders, naturally it's your idea. You've put so much work into it. You've put your heart and soul into it. How hard is it to step away from it? And do you think this is a mistake that a lot of founders still make? I think it's the easiest decision in the world. Um, it feels like it's, like it's a decision you can't make until it's there and then it's the easiest. So... When I, I, NAPTA was my fifth company in four years. Um, I actually set up before um, Synapse, which built my Zindagi, before um, Le Plastics. I had a, a health tech consultancy and a software um, development company, mostly focused on health technologies out of London. And um, I, yeah, you, you, you learn a lot about setting up companies in the early days. And so I enjoyed them because there was a, a steep learning curve. Um, and I still care a lot about sustainability Obviously, the, the 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 health thread has has been present in um, in, in many ways, or in all of them in some way. Um, always had a fascination with emerging markets because I think so. The Middle East, Africa, South Asia, um, because here there's always been to me the greatest perceived need. Um, but but when so I I had I set up um, Le Plastics in September 2016. Then I moved here with my husband. Um, for his job, actually. And I went to speak at a conference in Kuwait on diabetes. And when I was there, I chatted extensively with the organizer, um, not about diabetes, but about the fact that I was pregnant. And he then sent me a whole load of stats on women's health in the region about a month later. And they were, they were, they were 
pretty terrible. So, you know, 80% of breast cancer is diagnosed at stage four, for example. Um, and the difference between survival rates, stage one, stage two, you have a 99% survival rate. So if cancer is caught very early at stage four, it's 27%. And even that's probably a little optimistic for, for most people it's terminal. Um, and there, there were just, there were loads of stats and it, it, it made me realize how, and I, I had had the first part of my um, kind of care on the NHS. It really brought home to me the discrepancies in terms of access and opportunity from a healthcare perspective that existed between the established Western markets and the rest of the world. Um, but as soon as he said, do you want to do something in women's health together? The answer was yes. And I, I said, I need a few months to hand over my existing business interests. Um, I closed down the, the companies which were still open and operating in the UK. And we were meant to wait until my son was born to start work on the company, but then he was late. So we started work on the day he was due, 21st of March, 2017. Yes, also Mother's Day here, also my, my co-founder's birthday. So that's, yeah, m many things. <laughs> many conflated things in the end. Um, but the decision to, the decision to um, found NABTA and the decision to build NABTA and continue to build NABTA ever since has been very easy. And I remember when I set up my first company and I was at, a, um, at an event, so at Web Summit in Ireland, and we had been kind of pitching to different people. And after, after this event, I was out in the pub chatting to someone I'd met earlier. And he said, he said to me, now listen, don't take this the wrong way, but I'm 100% sure that this is not what you're meant to do. But I know that you're meant to have, like, you're, I know that you're meant to be running a company. And when you find the company that you're meant to run, you'll know. And I was a little bit insulted at the time because I, I thought, no, this is the company that I'm running. This is the company I want to run. It wasn't. Um, I think one of the signs that entrepreneurs can look for is when they are able to focus exclusively on one thing. You know, this same guy said, you need to want this company more than anything in order, in order to make a success of it. And again, you know, I was like, well, thinking I, I want to have a family. I'm going to have other priorities. Am I ever going to want a company more than anything? And um, again, as soon as we founded NAPTA, it was apparent that, yes, in fact, I would want a company more than anything. And, that, and, and it, do, it doesn't mean that I don't love my family and that they're not my number one priority. It means that when I'm in the shower, I am thinking about NABTA. And when I'm driving, I'm thinking about NABTA. And I don't find it difficult to work into the early hours of the morning, even in the midst of pregnancy when by all accounts I should be asleep because I'm working on and thinking about NABTA and there's not a day that goes by where it is not in my head. And so I think I realized latterly what he meant by you have to want it more than anything. It just has to be that thing that you can't put down, no matter how much you want to. And as soon as that happens, you know you've got your company. It's very fascinating the kind of relationship founders have with companies. I find a lot of analogies and relationships here as well when you mentioned that finding out what's right for you and then stepping away from it when you know it was wrong. So I want to extend one more analogy from relationships here. I don't know if it works. Do you think love at first sight also works with companies and founders? Did you have a moment? So you mentioned, obviously, when the co-founder said you want to start, you said yes. 
But did you have this moment where you just sat back and you had this moment of clarity, one specific moment where it just all came together and you could see the path forward? Um, I think it was, yeah, for me, NABTA was very much, was very much love at first sight. And I don't know if it was because I'd had a few companies, so I I knew a little bit what I was looking for, what I was or what I wasn't looking for. But um, you know, I have a I have a very, very busy mind. And um, I think if I, the, the wonderful thing about NAPTA and the wonderful thing about women's health is that it is such an untapped opportunity. It has been neglected for such a long time that um, like I could work on this company f- for the rest of my life and, and there would still be significant progress to be made. And that's a very satisfying thought, you know, to have a, what then becomes a kind of lifetime vocation something that you can continue to build when you're old and gray and slow and something that you're still going to care about and something that you still know is going to be impactful. Um, that, that for me, I think was, was one of the, you know, the kind of like electric moments that you get where it's like, Ooh, this is going to keep me busy for a very long time. And that was, a, yeah, that was one of the things that, that contributed to the love at first sight, I guess. So I think you mentioned you started Napa in 2017, when at the same time when you were starting a family as well. So I want to check with you when founders, when they start a company that's especially in social impact and also a company like yours, where you're addressing a lot of issues in women's health. When you meant, when you moved here, you said the region, did the stats were really bad at that point. So you have a vested personal interest as well in seeing it succeed. Do you think that can usually work to your benefit because it'll keep you driven and it'll keep you passionate about your cause throughout? Or can that at times also cloud the judgment because there, there might be moments and most founders face it where they have to make certain business decisions that might compromise on the vision in some sort. Do you think in that sense then having a vested personal interest might cloud what's bad for business? Or by default, do you define that anything that's compromising on your vision is a bad business decision because you should remember what you started this for? Um, so I think again, uh, possibly at the, it, so we, we spent 15 months in a discovery, in a discovery mode. So during the discovery phase of R and D where we researched the ecosystem quite extensively, we looked at what was being built in the U S what was being built in Europe. We were really the first, um, women's health technology or femtech company here. Um, and we knew that we were going to have to build something a little bit different, for the Middle East, Africa, South Asian markets, because the things that are unifying factors in the US, for example, are not unifying factors here. So in the US, unified by language, unified by um, infrastructure, education, and, and, a, and a degree of kind of um, sort of general like social status and, and disposable income. Whereas here, the unifying factors are family and culture and language and food and a sense of having been also, I think, either taken advantage of or ignored by the rest of the world for a long time. Um, so we, we, we knew we were going to have to build something a little bit different. Um, and while we were in that discovery phase, you know, it was, it was a little bit where we've got this, we've got women, we, wanted, we knew we wanted to look at women of reproductive age. So from the age of about 14 up to 58 or so, because... Um, there are so many, like most of the kind of key milestones in an individual's life occur in that time frame. Um, we decided to start focusing from a from a clinical perspective. So really the from in terms of the 
truly hybrid healthcare aspects of the platform on um, women who are trying to conceive, because for a lot of women, it's the first time in their lives that they become experts in their own health. And this was this was anecdotal, but also proven. Multiple surveys that we've done, all of the all of the form analysis, you can see that women women really get to understand themselves and their bodies either when they fall pregnant or when they don't. And if you want to motivate somebody to change the way that they live, you pick a woman who's trying to fall pregnant. It's probably the greatest single motivating factor um, for changing diet and lifestyle after or alongside a cancer diagnosis. Um, so we settled on that moment and that, that's, that has not changed. Even though um, we settled on that moment, it kind of coincided with my own um, encounter with infertility. So I had one baby um, we were trying for a second. Um, I was using the fertility monitor that uh, we've now registered and integrated with the platform here. Um, and it told me that I wasn't ovulating. So no no likelihood of conceiving anytime soon. I went to see an OBGYN, was diagnosed with insulin-resistant polycystic ovary syndrome, which is a, it's a hormonal imbalance, usually caused by um, elevated blood glucose levels, elevated insulin levels, which then cause a corresponding increase in testosterone, prevent ovulation, um, and was given a trigger shot, con conceived or was confirmed pregnant 17 days later. And that whole, the, the time that elapsed between deciding to see a doctor and being confirmed pregnant was 21 days. And the global average time just to diagnose PCOS is two and a half years. 70% um, is missed or undiagnosed. Um, and that encounter showed me that there was a huge amount of potential in terms of reimagining the ways that we help women to fall pregnant naturally. Um, so yeah, the, my personal experience was definitely a motivating factor for where, where we initially focused. And when we raised our seed round um, to build the platform, if we'd been in the UK, we'd probably have done it through grant funding, but there aren't so many grant funding mechanisms available out here um, at the moment. Um, the, 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 the discovery that we made in terms of the correlation between metabolic disorders such as insulin resistance and infertility and the relevance that that played in terms of women's lives and their decision-making around diet and lifestyle, that hasn't changed. So that's still where we are targeting women, even though I addressed my insulin resistance, conceived baby number three naturally, now, probably personally, I'm more motivated by how we can support women both prenatally and postpartum. So while they're pregnant and after they've given birth. Um, but yeah, the, the moment where women trying to, trying to conceive remains the moment where we hope to initially engage women so that we can help them fall pregnant and then, and then take it forward from there. And it's a good business decision as well, because that's where women are willing to spend the most money and you see it. I mean, the global IVF market is um, about 10 billion US dollars and 10%, 10 to 12% of it is here in the Middle East, which is totally disproportionate to the population size. And the reason for that is because people are very, very motivated to start families here, um, which is a very long-winded way of saying, yes, I think there is a potential for personal circumstance, particularly when you're building something that is very personal to you to cloud your judgment in business, but you shouldn't let it. Do you ever get this feeling that what you're creating is much bigger than just a product or a service or an app, but what you're doing is, I don't even have the word for it, but 
maybe you're leaving a legacy behind or you're creating this kind of sort of a revolution naturally amongst other things that you address in women's health you also helping women become mothers which is a very powerful bond and probably one of the most powerful and magical feelings that they might experience in life so do you ever get this feeling that what you're doing is goes way beyond just a just a company or a service or a product or an idea so i think i think my problem is that i only see the big picture or i naturally see the big picture and i have to i have to reel it back in um so our vision is to build a trusted global leader in women's healthcare and to completely reimagine the way that healthcare looks not just for women but broadly take traditional healthcare which is very facility bound so it's very provider centric very provider led you know in our technology enabled age with an, an increasingly empowered and, and aware population care should be patient centric or or person centric you should be able to manage most of the 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 things that you need from a medical perspective on your on your own terms and outside of any one facility you know you shouldn't have to go to a provider unless you need a specific procedure not even for a prescription necessarily because there's the opportunity now to be prescribed things virtually um so i think yeah the the way that i or the analogy that i give is um i don't know if you drive supercars Do you drive supercars? Sports car. Yeah. Yeah. You do. Okay. Yeah. So you'll know that there maybe you remember the first moment that you drove a sports car yeah. and put your foot on the accelerator and it is fast and you have to in the in the first few seconds it's terrifying because you're focused where you would focus on the road if you were driving an, an, a normal car with a with a normal sized engine and you realize that you can't look 40 yards ahead you have to look at the furthest point on the horizon and then every, as soon as you do that everything slows down yeah and you feel like you're going at a at a normal pace and you are perfectly aware of everything that's happening around you as aware as if you were focused 40 yards ahead but you're not you're focused on the furthest point that you can see and if you have passengers in your car who again haven't been in supercars before they will also be terrified initially because they're doing the same thing that you did they're focusing 40 yards ahead instead of on the furthest point on the horizon and i think when you're an entrepreneur particularly if you're wanting to build something that as you say is bigger than a single product or service you're you are continuously focused on that furthest point on the horizon and actually the skill is working out what other people can see with that within their 40 yards and and painting that picture for them and making that 40 yards accessible and comfortable for them um so yeah my problem is the opposite like i i see where where napta has the potential to be in in 20 or 30 years time and i see in a, a totally different world for women in terms of access um and uh management of their health and you know dialing that back into kind of staged phases and deliveries and fundraisers that's almost the difficult part i really love the analogy that you gave of the sports car and looking at the distance what i want to check with you is when if you always have the big picture in mind can that create a burden on you because it might feel like you're trying to do too much at the same time can that be an obstacle at at, at a certain point Um I think it can it can be an obstacle if if as with everything if you don't put it um 
at, at particular moments in languages that the, the specific people you're speaking to understand. Um, nobody wants to be shown what they can't imagine or what they can't see. Nobody wants to be spoken to in terms they can't relate to. It's the same in every area in life. You know, if I was to step into a room with somebody who had never interacted with a consultant before and exclusively use, uh, exclusively use, um, uh, phrases or, or languages or, or abbreviations that they didn't understand, they'd be deeply uncomfortable. And it's the same thing with, with building companies. You have to work out what's in a person's 40 yards. And I think that took me a little while to wrap my head around. Um, again, I think, I think as with everything, once you understand the rules of a game, you can play by them or choose to ignore them. Um, and so for me, it's not difficult to have that bigger picture. What's difficult from time to time is to, is to make sure that, um, it's presented to people in a format that they're comfortable with. Again, in terms of in, we, we have a, we have a very structured rollout plan. Um, some people like it, like, again, you know, I, I kind of know what I want to be doing with the company for the next maybe five to 10 years in terms of growth. Um, which for me seems perfectly sensible and why wouldn't you want a staged growth plan? But a, a lot of people, a lot of investors, they, they, they interpret that trajectory as distraction or lack of focus on the current phase. And it's not, you can be very focused on what you're delivering now, but it's good to know where you're going, right? Um, so yeah. The big, the big picture, you, yeah, you, you, you've got to warn people before you let them in a sports car. And then <laughs> if they panic, you've probably got to slow down and go on a side street and, you know, return to 40 miles an hour. So it, same thing applies, I think, with, with, with business and with, with, with bigger visions. Simon Sinek had posed this thought experiment for founders where he had said that every founder needs to sit back and reflect whether they would still be attached to the company or the idea if their name wasn't attached to it. So if it were not to gain money, fame, or power from the company doing well, would they still promote the idea as well? Do you think this is a good litmus test for other founders as well? Yes, I think it's a, I think in general, the, the ecosystem has done slightly strange things over the last maybe 20 or 30 years um, due to the presence suddenly within the startup or the business world of immense amounts of capital due to the emergence of the rare breed, the unicorn. Um, I think previously people started businesses for different reasons. Yes, you know, they wanted to, firstly, they wanted to make a living and a living that they could manage and a living that they were comfortable with and allowed them to operate with integrity. And some people started businesses because they wanted to give people jobs and employ people and they, they had that sort of sense of, or that, that kind of parental instinct. And some people wanted to build their local communities and some people wanted to build, you know, ground breaking, world changing things. But very, very few people built businesses because they wanted to see a, a 50X return on investment um, and exit at a billion dollar valuation within four years of, of of setting up the company. And I think that's warped the motivations of founders. I think a lot of founders now believe that, you know, they should be thinking about an exit 
and that an exit means you, know, you you get bored out of the company, maybe you stay on for 12 months to sort of do the handover, but then you go on to do other things. And I think impact-led companies um, tend to fall outside of that a little bit more. But yeah, I think the, the motivating factors for a lot of founders has changed um, and, and they shouldn't. Like for me, it's totally logical to build something that I don't want to see firstly outlive me, um, but but also something that I that I wouldn't want to be involved with or would feel a little distressed about not being involved with it because I cared so much about it. You know, why would you start something that that yeah you didn't want to be around? There's a quote and I can't remember who it's attributed to I think it's actually from a Quaker but it's often attributed to one of the U.S. presidents in the in the late 20th century that um, basically we're in real trouble when men no longer plant trees that they won't live to sit in the shade of so people should be building things that they don't live to see bear the sweetest fruit you should build things and be comfortable with the fact that the impact they're going to have is going to outlive you. And I don't know if founders, particularly in the tech space, think like that as much as they should anymore. Let's explore the the idea that you, you're working on as well a bit further. Napta means blossoming plant. Yes. And amongst many issues I try to address, some primary ones are infertility, transition to motherhood, onset of chronic illness, premenopause, and prevention of women dying from curable diseases. Initially as well, you mentioned that this region is very family-centric. And it would seem that a lot of uh, the services that you offer, the products you offer, at initially you mentioned interviews could have been considered intrusive at that point. And when you started off, tampons were illegal for women in Saudi Arabia. They couldn't choose how they wish to give birth. A lot of these services are still viewed as very uh, intrusive on the on the family centric traditions that they have, and also on women because they have a very different perception of it. How hard was it to challenge that stigma and to really normalize this conversation moving forward? So I think we we've always tried to work within the um, in a way that is um, culturally appropriate or in a way that women are receptive to here. Um, again, the one of the reasons why we um, initially focused on women who are trying to conceive is because at that point, you know, firstly, mostly women are married. Um, so they have the freedom to, uh, go and see gynecologists, for example. Um, they, they are often at a point where they're considering very invasive, um, very, uh, very difficult, very challenging treatment options, you know, um, IVF where you have to firstly, take a, 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 a lot of hormones to encourage egg production and then those eggs are harvested and then they are fertilized um, in vitro and then and then they are re-implanted and there are lots of checks and much more challenging than to have um, a little, granted an, a vaginal sensor, but something that you can use from the privacy of your own home. You don't have to go into a clinic for it. You don't even have to admit that you're that you're worried about the fact that you're not falling pregnant or that you're wanting to do some investigation. 
Um, so we, we looked at the things that women care about here, privacy being, being really high on the list, um, autonomy in, increasingly being something, convenience being another. And we tried to build things that weren't going to challenge women from a cultural perspective too much. And I think that's still the case, honestly. There are, I, with everything in life, people have to, um, people have to arrive at decisions themselves. Um, the best thing we can do is make a lot of evidence-based information available to women for them to access in their own way, on their own terms, in a way that allows them to, to feel comfortable and to, to explore without feeling like, oh, this is not something I want to be involved with. So I think we've always been, we've and certainly have tried to be culturally sensitive. And then women are perfectly capable of challenging themselves and their own ideas and discovering new things for themselves. You just, our job is to, is to enable them to make informed decisions and the challenging they can do. Professionally and personally as well, I feel you have done a lot towards normalizing the conversation and removing the kind of taboos or stigmas that are associated with it. You have breastfed during investor meetings. You have uh, participated in a conference when you were in labor, I believe you were, and you won another conference when your child was 10 days old and you've carried your babies around to conferences. Well, you've done as much as you can to just normalize it. But um, recently in an interview, I think you said that despite trying to look for reasons otherwise, I still find that there are a lot of obstacles that I face in my career that are still due to the fact that I'm a woman, which I find a very heartbreaking statement at the same time. So the question is, has anything changed since you started? Have we seen progress? Are we still, it's very slow and very gradual. I think it's, I think it's gradual, but constant. Um, yeah, we've been, we've been making a lot of noise about women's health in the region since we started operating. Um, there are, as far as I can work out now, significantly more panels, discussions, podcasts, questions on women's health. Um, there are companies, more companies now um, that are gently technology enabled that have established themselves. Um, My Lily Box, um, which is a period subscription um, company, there's Impective, which offers a more, uh, I guess, kind of body-friendly form of um, uh, sanitary towel. There are other companies that are starting to see the space as an opportunity. My personal goal this year is to create a real sense of FOMO among the investment community about women's health. Because at the moment, I still think people don't really realize the market opportunity that it is. They don't, they don't believe the the growth that that we're seeing in other markets such as the US and Europe um and we need that fomo to exist because until it's there there won't be enough people who are seeking out companies to invest in which means that not enough companies will come here um do the barriers for women still exist i mean i have what 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 do those barriers look like i have conversations with women almost every single day about how they have decided to delay having families because they're worried that it will impact their career, especially female entrepreneurs. Um, and that, that suggests very heavily that there are still barriers here. I mean, this baby is due tomorrow and I rock up in, I've been rocking up in meetings probably for the last couple of months to 
be received either with blank looks, even though I'm the only person in the room and there's absolutely nobody else who could be coming to meet this person for this meeting. And they still look at me and I know that the first thing they see is pregnant woman. They don't even consider that I could be Sophie Smith, co-founder of Nabda Health, the person that they're meant to be meeting. Um, yeah, anything from, from um, consternation to genuine concern. And then all the questions about how they can help and should I be here and do we want to postpone the meeting? And um, yeah, in some ways, the investors that address the question head on are the easiest ones to deal with because you, you it's all there on the table. Um, but yeah, of course, it's immensely frustrating. Um, you feel like you, you get asked a lot of questions that force you on the defensive and it's difficult to answer defensive questions positively. Um, the answer I tend to give is, you know, like one in one investor recently, um, at the end of the, at the end of the conversation, um, said, so Sophie, um, this is a personal question. And if you don't want to answer it, that's perfectly fine. But you know, you've had two children, you're expecting your third. This is a company that's done a lot in the last four years, but it's in a position where it could grow very fast in the next couple. Do you really think you're up for it? Do you think you're the right person to run it? And, um, and so then you have to explain, well, I've had two other children since the company was founded. Um, we successfully raised one funding round. We've grown the company substantially in terms of our reach. Um, we've created the kind of R and D that the region hasn't seen in our space. Um, to date, we've got a lot of partners on board. We're establishing partnerships with medical providers in the region. With the f and the f with one of the first, if not the first, consumer healthcare company in, in the UAE to do so. Look at all the progress we've made. There's nothing to indicate that this isn't going to continue, regardless of whether I have one or two or three or however many more children. And also think about who, who we're serving. At the end of the day, ultimately, we're serving women. And what do you think they see when they look at me from a non-investor standpoint? They see somebody who is living the company's mission, vision, and values. They see somebody who um, probably understands what they're going through, who they can definitely talk to about their concerns, like who, who, who's likely to take their concerns and their points and their suggestions on board. Um, and at the end of the day, you're serving your customers, you're serving your team and you're serving your customers. And yes, there are other internal stakeholders like your shareholders who you are working for, but, but it's the customers at the end of the day who matter. Um, and so how I look to them is the most important thing. And as long as we're serving women and I'm a woman, it can't be a bad thing. It is very powerful what you're doing and I'm sure your actions and your work will speak even further and even louder with as the years go on. You did mention about uh, a lot of the challenges that female founders in the region face. Are, are there some things that they need to specifically look out for? Um, other female founders out there that might be watching. In addition to the challenges of founding company, is there something specific that other female founders need to always watch out for? Um, I think there are not necessarily things you have to watch out for, but I think it's always good to have... Um, people who act a little bit like your tribe, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a family. And I think it takes a village to raise a company. And there are people who have established networks going into setting up businesses um, and a smaller percentage of those are female. And so finding people who um, work in the same space as you, 
who you look up to, reaching out to them for mentorship and support, asking for introductions, asking for doors to be opened, um, asking for advice on interactions you've had. So to work out whether people are wasting your time or not. I think the, you know, cash flow is, is and ca- cash is king in the early stages of a company. And so the less time you can waste pursuing things that are never going to happen, the better your business will be in the short and long term. So I think, um, yeah, looking for, looking for people who are going to be, who are going to really have your back, who are going to support you, who are going to open doors for you and not, not just people who invest money in your business, although obviously that's good to have. Um, but yeah, people who are people who are going to help you through the first phase, acknowledging that the stats are against you is important. So in Q1 2021, um, I think there was $173 million invested into startups in MENA. Um, or oh, 170, yeah. About 170 million went to entirely male-led teams. Um, 1.5, went to female-led teams, maybe 1.7, and then 0.5 went to co-led teams. So you as a female founder are significantly less likely to secure venture capital in not just in this region, but more widely than, than your male counterparts. And that's just a statistic that you have to acknowledge. And you can acknowledge that it will change, but in the short term, the more you can do to arm yourselves against it, the more best practice you can have, the bigger your support network, the better your chances are. Definitely something to look out for. One final big question before we start wrapping up. When you are passionate about an idea like you are, how hard is it to find or to build a team that's as passionate as you? And I say that because there's always this constant struggle for founders when they're finding new employees. This is the You have a personal stake in the company. It's your idea. You put your effort into it and you have something to gain from it, not just monetarily, but even if just the idea grows. And while employees might like what they're doing, they might like the product, they might like the vision, for a lot of them at the end of the day, it just becomes a job that pays the bills. And if they were to lose that job or they were just to get laid off, then they would just go to another one. So they always have that option while the founder has a more of a personal stake into it. So how hard is it, do you think, to build a team in that sense that is equally vested in your vision as you? Um, actually, I think that's one of the areas we've never struggled in at all. And I think for a lot of mission-driven or kind of impact-led companies, it's not, it's just not difficult. Um, and you can make sure that it isn't difficult by asking the question up front. So we um, we partnered with the Algarea Foundation, which is a local foundation for education that sponsors STEM schools through university um, from the MENA region. We partnered with them maybe three years ago now. We've had a lot of interns from them who we've converted to part of full-time employees. Um, but we also obviously place ads through like LinkedIn and the like. Whoever we get applying for any role, no matter what level within the company, once we get their application, decide to kind of take it to the next stage, the first thing that we do is ask them two questions. Why do you want to work in women's health? And why do you want to work for NABTA specifically? And if they don't answer those comprehensively um, and if they talk mainly about what they're going to bring to the company and how their skill sets perfectly align with the position um, we don't take them on Um, we don't interview them and it's really important to us because we're fighting a little bit of a battle to to make women's health a priority to 
establish the fact that the financing of women's health technology companies in the region should be commonplace. You know, we, we need people who understand that it's going to be potentially at times a rocky ride. And definitely COVID for us was a rocky ride because the entire healthcare ecosystem shut down. If you were a hospital or a clinic, you're trying to work out what to do with the fact that your footfall had either increased massively as a hospital or, or disappeared completely because you were closed as a clinic. If you were a lab, suddenly you were swamped with COVID tests, like our entire partner ecosystem in the healthcare sector went offline and didn't speak to us for about 12 months. And so we also went into kind of, I mean, we can we continue to build and complete the final phase of our R&D, but it was a difficult year. And the only reason we got through it was because of the team and because of them being as willing to make sacrifices as, as the founders were. Um, and yeah, so I think you can, you can make your job a lot easier, particularly as the founder of a mission-driven or impact-led company by asking the really important question at the beginning, like, are you on board with the mission of the company? Does it mean something to you? Um, and then only, only bringing on board people, regardless of their skills or background for whom it's more than a job. Thank you for giving spoilers uh, for people who are looking to interview at NAFNA. So now they know what questions to prepare <laughs> for. <laughs> so there's the benefit to watching this episode. Okay. So before you start wrapping up, I'd love for you to interpret what you've built with oh, the Lego here. So I am, um, I built, I built, before we actually started talking, I built a crocodile. Um, and then I have no idea what this is. It's like a little fat, probably it's a cleanup bot. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, but then, the Roomba. yeah, which I have then exclusively fiddled with because I'm a real fiddler. Um, but I was never going to build things while I was talking or I would have been distracted. No, but it's great. We have a crocodile and uh, a vacuum or a hoover bot. So perfect. <laughs> All, All right. So let's move on to our final questions. What are some books, movies or people that have strongly influenced in your life? Books, movies or people. Okay. So my, my, my number one role model is Elon Musk. Um, for so many reasons, um, he's, he has a very strong kind of impact led core to him. You know, he looks at the way that the world is built and he doesn't see edges. He sees his possibilities and, you know, he has crazy visions, but that are, that are generally in the best interest of humanity that he pursues no matter what people say about him. Um, and he, he defies kind of all of the rules that um, people generally set for themselves and for other entrepreneurs. So one of the rules being, uh, which is it's a, it's, a, it's a military reference that as a general, you can't fight a battle on two fronts. You've got to be focused on one thing. And he has built SpaceX and he has built Tesla and he has built SolarCity and now he's building Neuralink in parallel. And he is perfectly capable of focusing on one thing absolutely at one point in time the fact that he has companies that are, you know, things that he cares about that he's doing in parallel is, is non-issue or he's made it a non-issue. He challenges stereotypes um, and he builds. He just, he, he builds because he loves to build, not because he's interested in billion dollar valuations, not because he's interested in what people think about him. Um, yeah, he, he's a, he's a really cool guy. Um, in terms of books and movies, uh, probably one of my favorite movies is It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I don't know if you know it. The Italian movie. 
No, no, no that's um, that's it's a beautiful uh, life. Yeah, that's La Vita è Bella, which is also a lovely movie, yeah. by the way. It's a Wonderful Life is about this guy, and it's a black and white movie. Um, a guy who's brought up in this town, and he has big ideas. He's he wants to he wants to build bridges and planes. He wants to be an engineer. He wants to travel the world. The old the American movie. And the then he, old movie. And he finds out what his life would have been like if he had if he hadn't existed. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. so, but he he never gets to leave his town because um various things happen he gives a scholarship to his brother and then he gets married and he he ends up taking over his father's business when his father dies and he um he, he never leaves and at one point um he he ends up his 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 uncle actually loses some money that they need to pay into the bank and this 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 guy who owns half the town threatens him with jail and he's stood on a bridge and he's just thinking it would be, be I'd be people would be better off if I wasn't alive. And um, this angel appears who then shows him exactly what would have happened if he hadn't lived. And you get to see how one person's life can touch other people's lives in so many ways, big and small, and you'd never know it. And in the end, and it's a movie that makes me cry, and I'm not a, I'm not a crier, it makes me cry every time I watch it. It, you know, he realizes that he has a wonderful life. And that he wouldn't have it any other way. And um, yeah, I think it's a really important lesson for all of us. You know, I, uh, <laughs> there's, there's no doubt that the doubting the fact that as people living in the UAE, we're phenomenally privileged full stop. But I think the, there are so many little things in life that it's, it can be easy to take for granted, tiny little things, you know, amazing things. I think the important thing is to is to never lose sight of those and to always be grounded by those more than the bigger things. So that's a film that I love. And then books. I know I was a voracious reader until I started my first company. And now <laughs> I don't have the time really to read anymore. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, just many many, many books of different kinds, um, startup stories of founders that I found very inspiring, um, stories that I found very distressing, like bad blood. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't pick a book. I, I, there are too many books. What would you like your legacy to be like? I don't, I don't think I have ever really thought about my legacy. Um, I know what I want to build. Um, I, I I would like my I would like my children um, to be left with a more equal world, but I fully acknowledge that that will have a tiny bit to do with me and a, a lot to do with a lot of other people. Um, in terms of the company, I would like it to live for a very very long time. I would like it to outlive. Me, I would like it to outlive my children. Um, I would like it to be materially improving the lives of women, you know, three or four generations from now. Um, in terms of, a guys, I guess a specific goal or or legacy, that's probably the that's probably the most tangible one. Um, otherwise, I don't know. I think I. I'm I'm not a doctor. My parents are doctors. Um, 
I'm not a doctor, but I definitely believe in in the Hippocratic Oath and Hipp Hippocrates' key principle of first do no harm. I'd like to feel that I went through my life not harming anybody, but mostly making the world a little bit better. It's a great legacy to have. Last question. What do you think is the meaning of life? What do I think is the meaning of life? Um, I think, I mean, goodness me, that's a big question. Um, I was born and brought up a Catholic. Um, so I, I believe in God and I believe in life after death. And I believe that, uh, I, I believe that what we have here and now today isn't, isn't the end. Um, so, you know, ultimately, um, as, as, as Catholics, we believe that if you live a good life and a virtuous life, you will one day make it to heaven. I would like to make it to heaven. <laughs> um, and in terms of, in terms of the day to day, I don't know. I think I think the meaning of life is to, is to, um, it, it, it kind of is its own meaning, you know, it's a phenomenal privilege to live. And if you can go through life and appreciate it for what it is and accept that all of the millions of interactions that you have and the decisions that you make a part of this experience that will be yours only once um, and that you're going to make the most of it, you've probably grasped life's meaning. It's a great meaning to have. Sophie, thank you so much. If people want to connect with you, find out more about Napta, where can they do so? Um, so you can find us on naptahealth.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, Sophie Smith, Napta Health you'll find me. Um, I'm always happy to have coffee and chat, uh, particularly if you're wanting to talk about women's health. Perfect. So do reach out to Sophie for coffee if you would like. Sophie, thank you so much. It was an honor talking to you. Thank you.